Anybody excited about Jesus this morning besides myself? Oh, come on, you got to do better than that. I said Jesus Christ. Come on, can we give it up for the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? Just a little housekeeping before we get started here in the African-American context. We like to call our preaching dialogical preaching. Simply means that there's a conversation that happens between the pulpit and the pew. In other words, if you feel an amen on you, you go ahead and say amen, all right? I'm all right with that. If you need to stand up and say that's for me, I'm all right with that as well. I haven't seen you all since 2017, and you all look good in 2018, amen? Just in case nobody complimented you, there it is. There it is. Um, excited to be graduating um, next month from Moody uh, Bible Institute, so I'm excited about that. How about we pray and get started here? Father in heaven, God of grace and mercy and joy and peace and gladness, Lord, fill this room with the power of your Holy Spirit. May we feel your presence. May we be transformed by the word. Do whatever it is that you have to do to make us look more like Jesus. He is the goal. He is the aim. And we pray that you would do that. In Christ's name I pray. And everybody say. Amen. I want to tag this text this morning in your hearing. After a popular song in the 80s. The man in the mirror. Friends, it will be August 31st, 1987. When Michael Jackson would release the song, Man in the Mirror. Now, I know you're in church and you got to act like you don't know who Michael Jackson is. But you know who Michael is, moonwalking Michael Jackson, king of pop Michael Jackson. The Gary campus is literally around the corner from the house that he grew up in. Michael Jackson write that song, Man in the Mirror, and it would peak at number one on the billboards for two weeks. Michael sold over a million CDs. Who would have thought? that mankind would be so interested in a song that requested a hard look at self. This song was written so that you and I would slow down and take a conscientious look at ourselves. Song goes a little bit like this. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. Wish I knew how to sing, I would sing it to you. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. No message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. In other words, the real change that is needed is not out there somewhere in the world or in the cosmos, but the real necessary needed change needs to take place with the man in the mirror. It comes to find out after reading Romans 2, Michael Jackson owes money to the Apostle Paul. <laughs> it looks like he stole the idea of looking into the mirror from the Apostle Paul. If you have been following these past weeks, Paul has made a drastic shift in his terminology. In chapter 1, he uses the word they as he's referring to the depravity out there in the world. And then comes the substitution. 
If you go back to chapter 1, you see they, 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 they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God gave them up. They were filled with unrighteousness. But now Paul in chapter 2 replaces they with you. You see it right there at the opening gates of chapter 2 where he says, Therefore, you have no excuse. It is as if Paul in chapter 1 is holding the mirror so that his readers can see the depravity in the world. Then in chapter 2, he takes that mirror and he turns it towards his readers and say, do you see the depravity in your own life? These past weeks, we have been looking at the man in the mirror. And I'm sure these have not been easy weeks. I believe the hardest person to face in life is yourself. You would think that my homeboy Paul would take a chill pill at this point, but he doesn't. He digs even deeper into our hearts in these final verses. Paul needs his readers to see who they really are in these final verses because they think that they are safe from the wrath and judgment of God to come. And this is why. Because they have a false perception of themselves. There are at least three basic reasons that Paul brings up in these following verses, and he articulates in them why they deny their need of the righteousness of Jesus. Paul articulates for us, he breaks down for us, why they believe they don't need the righteousness of Jesus. Now, of course, as we look at Romans chapter 2, it is clear that Paul is addressing the Jews. But in a very real sense, he's addressing all of us this morning. The first place I like to land is where Paul is. Nationality cannot save us from the wrath of God. Nationality cannot save us from the wrath of God. Put your seatbelts on. We are in for a ride. When we get to verse 17, Paul is having a Simba and Rafiki moment. Perhaps you remember Lion King this morning. Come on, everybody knows Lion King. And he's having a Rafiki from the Lion King moment with Simba. When Rafiki takes Simba to the water to see his reflection, Simba becomes frustrated because he doesn't see what he's looking for. But Rafiki, that crazy bamboo monkey in the middle of the jungle, tells Simba to look harder. Paul is saying, in essence, in verses 17 through 20, do you see your depravity? No? Look harder. Literally, the verse begins with, now if you call yourself a Jew. Pay close attention to that phrase because Paul could have called them Hebrews. The word Hebrew basically indicates their language. Paul could have went another route and he could have called them Israelites. That basically indicates their land, the land in which they live. But he wants them to look harder. So Paul presses upon their nationality by calling them Jew. Now, Jew would indicate to his hearers 
their nationality, race, or heritage. Paul is getting down to the core of their identity in their mind. He's getting down to the core or the basis of their justification in their own minds. This was the place of pride for them. I love the way John MacArthur said it. He says, there is pride in their language. There is pride in their land. and There is particular pride in their nationality. It spoke of their distinctiveness from all other nations, from all the Gentiles. It was the mark of their uniqueness to be Jew. There might be other people in the land, no doubt, and there might be other people that spoke the language. But a Jew was the unique people of God. And so it became a title of honor. It designated them as the special people of God. The word even came from the Hebrew root meaning praise. I know a lot of you wish somebody would call you praise this morning, but it's not going to happen. They were named praise because of the tremendous privilege they had had. And what a privilege it was to be called a Jew. They felt they were better than everybody else because they were Jewish. To be Jewish meant something. Every Jew knew in respect to truth, he was privileged far above everyone else. We are Jewish. No one knows God like us. No one has access to God like us. No one is loved by God like us. Do you remember the Red Sea when they were in a dilemma and Pharaoh was coming after them, ready to crush them and destroy them? Who shows up? Nothing other than Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. And he spreads the Red Sea and the Jewish people come on the other side. And that's worth shouting over. But if you keep reading, we find out that God rains down wonder bread from heaven. Isn't God amazing? He's able to give you wonder bread from heaven. And I, I started clapping myself when I read the text, and then he sent them a turkey meal. And I don't know about you, but I love me a good turkey sandwich. And so he sent them quail out of heaven. And so you can kind of see and you can kind of understand where these Jewish people are coming from when they feel that they are better than everybody else. They think they're all that in a bag of chips, as we would say. Y'all do know that saying, right? All that in a bag of chips. <clears throat> but what is fundamentally wrong here is God didn't call them so that they can make much of their nationality. But God called them the same reason he called you and I. It is to make much of him. Church, you better be careful not to get so caught up in your nationality that it becomes your praise instead of Jesus. I'm not saying we shouldn't be proud of how God has made us because I'm proud to be a chocolate brother and I love my nationality and I love my culture. But we will never reach the world with the gospel if we think that we are better than one another on the basis of our nationality. Church, that is anti-gospel. Of course, it is easy for us to say, oh, no, you know, I would never think that way. But I encourage all of us, including myself, to look harder. Now, the Jewish people 
had such pride in their nationality that they even put God in debt. Imagine that, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke the world into existence, being put in debt by people who he created. You know that God is extraordinarily powerful. Theologian says that he has ex nihilo power, which means that God has out of nothing power, that when God speaks, things begin to happen. And the Jewish people thought that they could put that God into Jewish debt. God found these people by calling an idol-worshiping man called Abram. Abram wasn't thinking about God. Abram was doing his own thing. He was probably cleaning his car, going to work. Not probably his camel uh, to, to be more uh, up to date or rightly. And so God calls this idol-worshiping man, and he makes a nation out of him. Come on, God, with your bad self. But the Jewish people did math like this. Jew equals the favor of God. Jew equals the favor of God. What does this mean for them? Because we are Jewish, we are above the law. Because we are Jewish, we can live how we want and never face final condemnation, never really face ultimate judgment because we are justified because of our nationality. And therefore, we don't need Jesus. We see a glimpse of this in Micah chapter 3, verse 11, and it reads, Its heads give up judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Do you see it? We can bribe, we can lie, we can cheat, and we can work for dishonest gain, but nothing will happen to us because the Lord is on our side on the basis of because we are Jewish. And therefore, we do not need a bloody Savior. We don't need a cross. We don't need any righteousness. We are all good with God because of our nationality. Now, to press it a little bit further, the reason why they articulated that or believe that they had this righteousness or this good relationship with God is because God had given them so much light and revelation of himself. The Jewish people said, we know for a fact that God is on the Jewish people's side because he wouldn't have gave us so much light and revelation. We see this in verse 17, bringing us to Paul's next point. Revelation doesn't equal salvation. Revelation doesn't equal salvation. Look at verse 17 through 20. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul essentially in these verses lists five more reasons of their pride in elitism through revelation and knowledge. Paul says that number one, the reason why that they believe that they will not face judgment is because they possess the law. The Jewish person is like, God's not going to condemn us. He wouldn't have gave us this law. We got the Bible at home. We're good. Now notice that they're not bragging about doing the law. They're just bragging about having it. Then number two, they felt they were above judgment 
because they were God's favorite. It's like that one kid in class who's extra irritating because the teacher and the principal, everybody loves him, but he's a snake in the background. And so he takes that favoritism and he uses it to his advantage. And then number three, Paul said they felt they were above judgment because they knew God revealed will. They were able to rattle off the Ten Commandments. They were able to tell you about all of the prophets. They were able to tell you anything about the Word of God. They had the Torah. They had the Ark. They had all of that, and they were able to tell you anything. Number four, they felt they were above judgment because they could discern right from wrong. They were like, we don't need anybody teaching us. We know light from darkness. We know good from bad. We know good when we see it. God is our teacher. We don't need anybody teaching us. And then Paul lands on the last reason they felt that they were above God. They felt they were above judgment because they were instructed in the law. You see this in verse 18 when Paul says instructed. I want to slow down here because the Greek word for that is katecho. We get a word from that word called catechism or catechism. Many of you will be familiar with that. It means to be taught something orally. They had been catechized. They had oral instruction since child, since childhood. They were taught in the home. They were taught in the synagogue. The Jewish people knew God's law and they knew God's will. But the issue is not what they know in their head. The issue is that they don't have it in their heart. This morning... That's where the issue lies. It is not, it's truth in your heart. It is, it's truth in in your heart, not in your head so much. So Paul sees this, and Paul is like, hold up, wait a minute, stop the press. Let me make sure I got this straight. I want to make sure I'm not the one tripping. And so the apostle Paul takes sort of a step back, and he does a reflection. And Paul says, so let me get this right. You boast... In the light and revelation you have, right? And they would say, of course. Paul would say, so you can break down justification and propitiation and sanctification and glorification and eschatology and ecclesiology and anthropology, and you can exegete the text in such an aerodynamic way that you can expound upon the pericope of the text. Am I getting that correct? And they would say, absolutely. And Paul would say, just for further understanding, let me make sure that I'm getting this clear. I don't want to accuse anybody of something they're not doing. So you mean to tell me that the Gentiles have a flashlight, and you have the S-U-N, and you think because you have more light and more revelation, you are better off? Although you don't use light to do right? A little poetry right there for y'all. I could do something that I can build on that. You have light and you don't use it to do right. Instead, you use light to do wrong. Do you not know more revelation could mean more condemnation, as Pastor Steve brought out last week. You know, to the Hebrew, true wisdom is to do what you know to be true. The Greeks, on the other hand, wisdom was just to know, to have a bunch of head knowledge. To the Hebrew, wisdom was to do. When we don't do what we know to be right or true, we are acting as fools. 
we are acting as fools. And oh, how easy it is to look down our nose at the Jewish people. But the blade cut both ways this morning. We are just as guilty. Many of us who attend church and Bible study think because we know the truth, we are good. But if you don't do, you don't know as you ought to know. Just watch what you believe and what you do. And when they contradict each other, there is a problem. And we could easily think because we have access to good teaching and we go to a church that preaches the Bible and we have the greatest seminaries and we got five different translations on our bookshelf that we are good with God. It is easy for me to think because I'm graduating from Moody that I am a child of God. Listen, that is false security. There is no security in that. What happens when the people with all of the knowledge of God, with the people who can break down all of their doctrines, with those who identify with Christ, live as if Christ doesn't exist? I'm talking about the super-Christians, the pastors, the teachers. What happens when their orthodoxy does not convert into orthopaxy? What happens? Paul tells us what happened. Verse 23 and 24. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed. Among the Gentiles, because of you. We ought to pause right there. You feel the weight of that statement? God is belittled in the world by those who claim to love and to know him. And yet they live like they don't know him. We become the, greater, the greatest workers of darkness than anyone. Those who are meant to be a light become tools in the hands of Satan. Being Jewish, Caucasian, African-American, Latino, Asian, with more revelation does not mean you belong to God. Nationality and revelation do not save us. Now watch how they are building a false perception of justification in their own heads. First it is... Because we are Jew. We don't need Jesus. And then they confirm that God loves the Jewish people by saying we know God favors the Jews because he has given us more light and revelation than anyone else. But Paul sees the next argument that is coming. He sees it in the horizon and he's going to tackle it. In the last argument that they had, not only are we Jew, not only has God given us light and revelation, but we also have circumcision. That's something to boast about, right? I'm going to try to summarize this. I figured you guys appreciate that if I did. Paul's last argument is association doesn't equal salvation. Association doesn't equal salvation. Pick up towards the end of the chapter. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you 
who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. What in the world are you talking about, Paul? I was lost as all get out. I'm like, all I know is there's something about circumcision because he mentioned it like 10 times. So let's understand something about circumcision here. Circumcision became the unique mark of the Jew. The the, The eighth day after the male child was born, he was circumcised. That was an indication of the child being set apart to that special covenant relationship with God and his people. Circumcision was good. It it was cool. You know, it was all right. It was a good thing to have. It was very, very important. It was so important that back in Exodus 4, check this out. The, The Bible is sometimes just ruthless. God was going to kill Moses for not circumcising his son. That's just a messed up way to die. Why did you die when you get to heaven? I ain't circumcised my son. That's not the story you want to leave with. (laughs) It was the sign of God's promise. It was the sign of God's blessing. It was the sign of God's protection and care and love. It was like the exchanging of wedding rings. Circumcision was a symbol of the covenant. But it didn't mean anything. If they didn't keep the law, listen to Paul in Galatians 5. He says, I testify to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the law. They thought that this outward symbol associated them with God as his people. So much so that in some Jewish writings, you can find things like this that no circumcised man shall see hell. As Ken Hughes says, but what good is a wedding ring on the the finger of an adulterer? It is not the ring that makes you a faithful husband or wife, but it is being faithful that makes you faithful. When the man or the woman without the wedding rings live faithful, They condemn the one with the wedding rings who are unfaithful, showing that true faithfulness is a matter of the heart, not outward symbols. In a similar way, when those who are not circumcised obey the law, they condemn those who are circumcised who do not obey the law. The issue with most of the Jewish people people in chapter 2 is that they are actively cheating on God but saying we didn't take our wedding ring off while we were doing it. Imagine that. Husband goes to his wife, I know I cheated on you, but I didn't take my ring off. You better duck because a hand is coming. Or foot, something's coming. We look down at the Jewish people, we do it all the time. Live our life however we want to. We don't care about the Bible. We read it. We come to church, but it doesn't have any weight in our life. And when people say, are you following Jesus? You better believe I'm following him. I'm a reformed. I'm Baptist. I graduated from Sunday school at the third grade. whoop de doo And I got perfect attendance at church. But when I leave church, I leave the building, God doesn't mean anything to me. The question becomes, does God have your heart? The question becomes, the inescapable question this morning, 
is does God have your heart? No one cares about your outward performance. No one cares about your list, your resume of religiosity. Does he have your heart at the end of the day? That's what the wife and the husband want to know. Do I have your heart at the end of the day? What is this marriage if I don't have your heart? Why are we together if I don't have your heart? It means nothing. Paul sees all of this revelation in light, this privilege that they have. And Paul says, you have all this revelation, you have all this privilege, what should you do with it? Not cloak darkness. Instead, you need to examine your heart with the light that God has given you. Look harder in the mirror, Simba. Look harder, Simba. See who you are, Simba. Look at verse 21. Revelation calls for investigation of our own hearts. And you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul is like all that light and revelation you have, put it to good use by examining the man in the mirror. Now I know you can see clearly that the world is jacked up. That's not what's in question. But can you see clearly that you're jacked up? Paul, in essence, is saying, God has given you a mirror to deal with the man in the mirror. You see, those of us who have the truth of God's word, we have a mirror. And, we're in, and when we're at home and we're searching the scriptures, indeed, the scriptures are searching you. Paul says that truth acts as a mirror. In case you didn't believe me, I brought my homeboy James with me just to make my point. James says this, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forget what he looks like. The word of God, church, is a mirror. I came to tell you this morning, you don't have the excuse that little David had in the third grade class. Little David came home from third grade art class with this report. They told us to draw ourselves. He said, but without a mirror, I ended up, mommy, drawing a complete stranger. No, we know ourselves better than anyone else because of the truth of God's word. We know what we look like, church. We know when we see hate. We know when we see adultery. We know when we see sin because the word of God instructs us. And I'm asking this morning that you take a hard look at your own heart. You know, there comes a time in life comes a time in church when we must do an examination of our own adherence to the truth. Because your own heart will either 
indict you as illegitimate or it will validate you as the genuine article. And this is where Paul lands us. A change hard is the true evidence of salvation. A change hard is the true evidence of salvation. For no one, as he ends the verse, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. <clears throat> and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Church, true salvation is not outward religion, but it's new life that comes from a new heart. Now, I love Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I know a lot of you in this room believe that Jesus is just a real soft-talking, pillow, feathery guy that doesn't say anything mean to anyone. Jesus is always very, very, very nice. But when I read the gospel, Jesus will cut you where you need to be cut. And so I landed in the gospels, and this is what he said. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I figured that one may have went over your head, so I brought another one. Jesus says it another way. He says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus is like, you spend most of your time cleaning the outside of the cup because you want to impress people. Religion looks for praise from man. Salvation seeks the glory of Jesus, and Jesus sees this. Jesus is like, there's no hide-or-go-seek with me. I see you. I see you for what you are. I know the inside of the cup. You can come to church and put on your pasted smiles and put on your Sunday best. And when someone walks up to you and says, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored of the Lord. Oh, yes. You know what? I didn't even eat all week. I fasted the whole time because all I wanted to do was commune with the Lord. You know I love Jesus. I love him very, very, very much. In fact, I don't even hang around human beings. The only people I hang around are angels. Michael the archangel, Gabriel the archangel. I got caught up to the third heaven three times, but when you get to know them, they're hateful. They can't stand nobody. They don't give to nobody. They're stingy. Life is all about them. They'll cuss you out in the heartbeat, but at the end of the day, they claim that they love Jesus, and Jesus is saying, you lift up your hands, but I don't have your heart. You come to church, but I don't have your heart. You know that you can get into church and never get into God. the inside of your cup clean? I guess the question becomes, Jesus, Paul, how do I get a clean heart? How do I get a new heart? We can't do this on our own. 
We have neither the will or the power to do so. Paul says, it is by the Spirit. And do not skip over that. If you skip that, you're going to mess this thing up. It is by the Spirit. You getting a new heart is a work of God. Outward religion can be accomplished by man because it doesn't require us to change our hearts. But neither can it save us because God will judge our hearts, not our outward performance or our nationality or what we knew in our heads alone, but what we did with what we knew. And this is where the gospel is so important because if you don't get a right perception of yourself, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot appreciate the gospel. If you don't see yourself as a wretched, lost man, you cannot appreciate the gospel. And I don't know about you, but God reached in the dumpster and grabbed Dexter Harris out of the dumpster and cleansed me up. That's grace. It is when we understand the grace of God that we sing with all our mights and with all of our hearts that he stretched him wide and they hung him high. And for who? For me and you, he died. The reality is this morning we are all in need of one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he provides us with a new heart. Religion can't do that. Jesus didn't come to give us religion. He came to give us a new life. And now it is not a new heart. I want, I want to be clear here. It's not that a new heart saves us, but it does prove that we are saved. A new heart is proof that Jesus lives in us. You may ask the question, Pastor Dexter, how do I know Jesus is living in me? I think that's a fairly good question. If I can go back to Lion King for a moment. When Rafiki tells Simba to look harder at his reflection, it is so that Simba would stop looking on the outside to understand who he was and start looking on the inside to see who he really is. Because who I really am is on the inside, not on the outside. Come to find out that Rafiki tells Simba to look harder, and he finds out that his father is actually living inside of him. So that when Simba looks back at the water, he sees his father being reflected back at him. I came all the way from Gary, Indiana to tell you that when you look in the mirror, you ought to see Jesus reflected back at you. You ought to see traces of his love. You ought to see traces of his patience. You ought to see traces of his goodness. And so when people ask you, Christian believer, why do you love your enemies? You can say, because he lives in me. When people ask us, why do we reach over economic and racial lines to love one another? It is because he lives in me. How do I grow an appetite for justification and righteousness? It is because he lives in me. And I came to tell you, if Jesus is alive in you this morning, you can believe that God has made you a new person in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have 
unparalleled peace when all disaster is breaking loose and we have transcendent peace that transcends understanding. It is because he lives in me. And I got a feeling that I'm not the only one in the room that can testify to the power of salvation. When Jesus gets on the inside, he changes everything from the inside out. When Jesus gets to work on the inside, I am a brand new man. I am not the same Dexter Harris that they found in 2006. When Jesus indwells in the hearts of his people, it is not a you might change, you will change. No doubt about it. You will change, church. So, my question to you is what do you see in the mirror? Do you see Jesus? If you do not see him, do not lose heart because Jesus is still in the business of saving people. He is still in the business of saving people. He's still in the business of taking people from the kingdom of darkness and placing them in the kingdom of light. He is still in the business of taking the spiritual dead and giving them spiritual life. He is still in the business of freeing those who are caught in sin. As he says, who the Son set free is free indeed. Come to him. It doesn't matter if you're religious or non-religious. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're Latino, Caucasian. It doesn't matter your economic background. If you come to Jesus, he will forgive you, justify you, impute his righteousness to you, take away all condemnation, and rise you up from the dead, victorious over hell, Satan, and sin. God is good, church. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can think or even ask. 